Hello everyone and welcome to this edition of the Strong Cast. Really, just how much um, are the young kids in the inner city uh, in the criminal justice system because of marijuana? And just what are the real effects? And can marijuana really become law where you can smoke marijuana the way you smoke cigarettes? We had a fascinating discussion in store for you uh, with two very special guests who are passionate and care very much about this issue that will be joining us to discuss it. Kadisha Tribble and Paul Larkin will be joining us to discuss this. And I will tell you, it will be a discussion that make you think twice about the perceptions and the outcome of drug use across the board. You want to join us for the special edition of the Strongcast with your host, Armstrong Williams. It seems as though we can never talk about drugs, the abuse of drugs, opioids, painkillers, over-the-counter drugs, drugs in your medicine cabinet. It seems that we cannot talk about it enough. And believe it or not, this is our first conversation on drugs and what's the proper usage of them on the Strongcast. We've invited Khadija Dribble, um, who's CEO of Marijuana Matters. That's an interesting title, Marijuana Matters. Ms. Dribble, welcome to the show. Thank you. And Paul Larkin, a researcher at the Edme Center at the Heritage Foundation. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for having me on. Was there ever a time in the history of our nation when, whether it's the elite, the ruling class, did not have a drug problem? Was there ever a time? And was there a period in our history where it became more prevalent than before, Khadija? So drug problem, drug use. I think we've always in this country used some substance mm -hmm. or another. I think uh, in recent times is when we have a conversation about drug abuse and um, whether we're talking about uh, pharmaceutical drugs, street drugs or food or any other thing that we would use. I think uh, people in this country are looking for a way to escape. Paul? Noah was the first vintner. So our problem with drugs goes back a very long way because alcohol is a drug by any definition. In this country, tobacco was one of the early products. Tobacco wound up being used later in mass production of cigarettes. And the mass production of cigarettes and tobacco are one of the things that we wish we could disinvent because 400,000 people each year die from one or more of the different diseases caused by tobacco use. So tobacco also is a drug, and we've had that throughout our history. The problems that we're talking about mostly today are with what we call illicit drugs, heroin, cocaine, marijuana, drugs that either can't be used under any circumstances or that can only be used by a physician's prescription. But the way to talk about the problem is to break it down, I think, into two categories, medical use of a drug and recreational use of the drug, because we have to approach each of those very differently. Let's, let's talk about the medical and the recreational use of the drug, Deja. Okay. Well, so it's interesting. I just want to, 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 to piggyback or at least challenge something you said around marijuana being an illicit drug. It's illicit because we have criminalized marijuana. But there is, in my, my research, not enough evidence to suggest that marijuana should be categorized like cocaine or heroin that needs a doctor's prescription. 
And I know that we have moved in this country to be able to try to segregate out medicinal marijuana use and recreational marijuana use. But I can tell you from the ground, marijuana is marijuana. And we don't know enough about, in my opinion, for doctors to say, hey, oh, let me prescribe this for this and this strand for this, for in this dosage amount. I don't think we have enough evidence to really begin to categorize medicinal marijuana use differently than recreational marijuana use. I personally think uh, it's a political ploy because hemp, which is now legal because of the Farm Bill, is the, is the way individuals produce CBD. And CBD is what is now being pushed in terms of the medicinal market. And THC is much more the adult use. And I think this is setting up a political fight on if we have medicinal marijuana that's already legal, then was there a need to have adult use or recreational use marijuana? And I think that that we go down a dangerous territory. And our history already suggests that we have a way to criminalize certain people, black and brown people, around their use or possession of. And this sets us down that that road that I think will be uh, harmful for us. Paul? We've gone about the problem of regulating drugs in the wrong way for quite some time. We generally think of them today as licit, which are pharmaceuticals, and illicit, things like heroin. Uh, the better way of looking at it is to look at it in terms of drugs that have a potential medical use and drugs that are only for recreational use. The problem is one that Congress created. In 1937, Congress passed the Marijuana Tax Act that effectively outlawed all use of marijuana. In 1970, Congress passed the Controlled Substances Act and placed marijuana in Schedule One. What Congress didn't do in 1970, what it should have done, is look back to what it did in 1938 when we passed the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. In 1938, we made the national decision that it was up to the Food and Drug Administration to decide what should be a drug and what drugs are safe. In 1962, we added the requirement that they also have to be effective. What we should have done is revive basically revise the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 and blend marijuana and all other drugs into the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act jurisdiction. We should leave to the Commissioner of Food and Drugs all decisions over whether a drug serves a legitimate medical use. And marijuana could never be uh, approved by the Food and Drug Administration, and it's certainly in its smokable form, as a legitimate drug. In 1964, the Surgeon General found that smoking tobacco causes health harms, including lung cancer. That hasn't changed. So smoking is not a legitimate therapeutic modality for any particular drug. Now, if you're talking about things other than smoking, you, uh, you still have the problem that unless you have a pharmaceutical grade product, you don't know what's in it. When somebody grows marijuana, the THC content can, and the CBD content can vary according to where it's grown, how it's grown, what strain it is, and the like. There's no uniformity. You also don't know whether there are pesticides or lead or other substances that are toxic in the marijuana people are smoking. Also, ask yourself this. There is no uniform length of an inhalation, depth of an inhalation, or number of inhalations. A physician can't tell you how much you're going to get if you smoke marijuana because he doesn't know all this. Only if you have pharmaceutical-grade products where they measure in milliliters or millimeters the amount of the substance and give you directions on the label as to how it should be used, how often it should be used, and the like, can a physician know. 
tell, for a physician to tell somebody to smoke medical marijuana as a therapeutic uh, mechanism for treating a disease is like telling you just go out and, and drink as much Budweiser as you want in order to get the same euphoric feeling. In fact, a physician at a major New York City medical center only two weeks ago said that. If we're going to legalize marijuana, let's talk about legalizing it for recreational use. Let's not kid ourselves that it serves any legitimate medical purpose. He said it's no different than Budweiser, and he's right. But how how can he be right if he doesn't? I'm sorry, were you going to oh, ask please. a question? Oh, please. No, 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 please. <laughs> but how can we be right if we haven't actually done the research that's necessary? So we don't actually know. A lot of folks are basing a lot of opinions based on what we assume is some anecdotal. But we haven't done a good job in this country of actually putting cannabis to the research test. And that's what we need to do before we decide whether pharma should take over uh, marijuana production or cannabis production for CBD. There's some, uh, there's some, uh, there's something in our history that says that we should be uh, careful when we give control over to the pharmaceutical industry to uh, tell us what we should and should not be doing. And we should lead with the research first, and that shouldn't necessarily fall in the hands of the pharmaceutical company. And I would give some more pushback on the fact that there are folks who have, uh, not just in this country, but in other countries, uh, who have used marijuana, uh, smoking marijuana, to actually uh, either prevent and or treat symptoms related to some diseases. And so we need to give those, those opportunities some credence and some credibility as well. We can't just say that it can't be done because we haven't ever done it. And one doctor is not enough, in my opinion, to say we shouldn't try let me make three points. Uh, first, I agree with some of what you've said, and particularly the point that what we need to do is find out whether ma the marijuana plant has useful constituents that could uh, be designed once they are properly manufactured to address disease. In fact, only last year, the Food and Drug Administration approved a, a cannabinoid that is a biologically active ingredient in marijuana for the use in treatment of various forms of rare but unfortunately quite debilitating childhood epilepsies. But they didn't approve it in the smoked form. And they, just, and they didn't say just smoke as much as uh, the child wants until he feels better. They approved it so that it could be used in certain millimeters and prescribed by a physician the same way we prescribe antibiotics, antiviral drugs, uh, and everything else that is in the pharmacopoeia. Uh, secondly, it's not just one doctor, uh, the one I mentioned from New York that says marijuana uh, doesn't really serve a legitimate therapeutic purpose. Uh, it is the National Academy of Sciences. In the report that they came out with last year, they examined a variety of different possible uses that uh, marijuana could have. And they said it doesn't uh, serve as a means of addressing cancer. Uh, at best, it serves as a, a means of perhaps alleviating some of the symptoms of very types, various types of neuropathic disorders, such as multiple sclerosis and the like. But it, it doesn't serve all the health purposes that many people make claims for it. And in fact, the Food and Drug Administration has agreed. They have actually sent letters to people who have companies that are manufacturing and selling different marijuana products, claiming it, it, it cures cancer when it doesn't. There's not, there's not really evidence of that. And the third point is, I think you're right to expect that we should be uh, able and willing to reconsider all our decisions over time, but who makes the decision, the consideration and the reconsideration is important. 
When we're talking about medical use of a drug, for 80 years, there's been a national consensus that the Food and Drug Administration should be responsible for making those calls, not individual doctors. Individual doctors can't go ahead and prescribe a drug that has not been approved by the Food and Drug Administration unless they're in a special experimental trial. And that's because of the way medicine is manufactured. There may be a day that we can manufacture medicine so that a particular John or Jane Doe will benefit from it and no one will be harmed. But what we don't have that point uh, in history yet. We are still at the point where you can only mass manufacture drugs. So we have trusted the Food and Drug Administration to make sure that the drugs that are dispensed on a large scale basis and that are prescribed by physicians are going to be safe and effective for the vast majority of people who are gonna use them. We can't do that with marijuana because of all the variations I mentioned, both in terms of content and in means of usage. So it may be that at some point, there will be more and more constituents of marijuana that are useful, and I hope so. I, just as I hope there are more and more drugs to fight all of the other horrible maladies that have unfortunately affect people today. But smoking marijuana is not going to be ever approved by the FDA for the reasons I mentioned. And it's not likely ever to, to gain acceptance in the medical profession. There, as I said, there is no legitimate medicine that is approved for dispensation by smoking. And I can't imagine that's ever going to change. Uh, yeah, I couldn't imagine that we'd actually be talking about legalization, legalization of marijuana at the federal level in the U.S. But we, here we are on the precipice of that. And I think there are um, a number of things. We, we, you, we're, we're titling this show, Why Does Marijuana Matter? No, 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 no. Yeah. Oh, this excuse is, me. This, well, is, this is discussion. Okay, this discussion. Yes. Uh, for me, marijuana matters. The public health argument and perspective is absolutely essential. But when I think about why marijuana matters to the constituents in the communities that I've worked in for the last 20 plus years, I think uh, about this legalization and this regulation of marijuana movement that's happening all across this country that African-Americans in particular need to pay attention, need to be a part of this conversation for three, from three particular points of view. One is the economic opportunity that, is, that exists with marijuana, uh, the new market of marijuana, regulated market. And second is the public health imperative. I think there are um, a lot of folks. My father is a veteran. He um, uh, is a 100% disabled veteran uh, and lost the use of his legs. And one of the things that I uh, become almost um, incensed by uh, with the criminalization of marijuana is that is there something in cannabis THC and CBD that could have prevented and or possibly helped my father live a better quality of life since he's been paralyzed for the last 14 years. But we don't know that because we've had a consistent criminalization and I think unfounded criminalization of a plant, which may serve us well, but we have no idea right now. And the third impact is obviously the criminal justice. I think there have been a lot of scholars and folks who've laid out why mass, mass incarceration and why the war on drugs has devastated and caused chaos in communities. And here we are on the precipice of this opportunity to, to change the dialogue around um, what marijuana is, how it can be used to help support communities and not just communities of color. Uh, particularly, one of the things I don't want to, uh, to leave from this discussion is um, if we were to think about this new market as a way to shift uh, 
entrenched poverty in communities, which, you know, there is evidence to suggest that the war on drug policies have been a part of creating this cycle of poverty, poverty to prison pipeline. What if we were able to ensure with our regulatory authority around legalized marijuana and taxation of marijuana that we center the lives of folks who have been most interrupted by the criminalization of marijuana? And what does that mean from a public health standpoint? What does that mean from a criminal justice standpoint? And what does that mean in terms of entrepreneurship and economic opportunities for communities? Those are the kind of conversations uh, that get me really excited. I think this conversation around whether marijuana can be smoked in a medical setting is an important one, but is not the only one, and we can't uh, ignore the other factors. The argument that criminalizing marijuana has filled our prisons is factually mistaken. You take a look at the two different categories of prisons we have. We have federal and we have state. Okay? The number of people in federal prisons is a mere fraction of what the total number of people incarcerated is. It's less than 15%. Most of the people who are in, uh, in prison, in state prisons, are there uh, for violent crimes, not for uh, marijuana offenses. The number of people who get charged in federal system, in the federal system, are oftentimes there uh, for drug crimes other than marijuana. You have a large number of people who are there for trafficking in heroin, trafficking in cocaine, and the like. So the, there is only a small number of people in federal prison trafficking for marijuana, and a small number of people in state prison trafficking for marijuana. Most of the people in state prison are there for violent crime. Most of the people in federal prison are there for non-marijuana crimes, okay? Plus, any criminal justice expert will tell you that the most important document in the file is not the charge to which someone pleads guilty, but is the pre-sentence report, which is what is always used in, federal, in the federal system. And that's because that goes through the entire criminal history of the person involved. The person who has been convicted of a drug crime, marijuana or otherwise, may have been involved in a large number of other crimes, including violent crimes. It's just that it's easier to convict someone of a drug crime than it is of murder. Think about it. If it's, a, if it's heroin, it's a controlled substance, a Schedule One substance. You can't possess it. If you are in possession of it, you're guilty. So it's a pretty easy case to make. And if you can then add in that you're involved with a large number of other people, then you might be able, uh, as the government oftentimes does, charge somebody with a racketeering offense or a major drug offense. So you get a very long prison sentence. You can get, in essence, the same sentence for uh, a violation of the drug laws as you could for a violation of the laws against murder. And if it's easier to make that sort of crime, it'll often happen. In fact, I had a former DEA administrator tell me that. It's just sometimes much easier to prosecute a case as a drug case than as a murder case. So you have a large number of people who have been involved in some drug activity, but that doesn't mean they were convicted uh, of a uh, homicide. They were involved in drug activity that involved homicides, and they wound up getting convicted just for the drug activity. Now, as to uh, whether or not marijuana can help people, uh, such as your father, for whom I'm very sorry. I mean, that's a terrible strait to be in. And I wish there were something we can do. Unfortunately, medicine hasn't reached the point yet where they can res restore uh, movement in limbs that have become paralyzed. Uh, and I don't think that was even one of the possible uses that... No idea. 
But, well, that's, we should engage in the research to absolutely. find this out. Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with taking the marijuana plant, uh, working in a lab to, to isolate and identify the different cannabinoids and find out what they are potentially good at. I mean, for example, last, last year, as a result of a culmination of a very long amount of analysis and study, uh, the FDA discovered that they can use canna cannabinoids, CBD, cannabidiol, to treat children who's suffering from these very debilitating forms of uh, epilepsy where they may have hundreds of seizures each day. Um, and that should be done, and we should do more of that. And if the law at present doesn't allow that to be done, that should be addressed. And we also and have to address the fact that it didn't allow it to be done for the last 20 years because we have racist criminal justice war on drug policies that are politically and racially motivated. And so everybody has missed out on the opportunity because we have wanted to make sure that we fill our jail cells. But, but one point you made but, about- but let, me, let me just respond to that sure. one because, sure, sure. I mean, the argument is, also, is often made that our drug laws are entirely racist, including the marijuana one. Well, the implementation okay. of them. Okay, Mexico outlawed marijuana in 1926, 11 years before the federal government did in the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. And I don't think Mexico did it because of anti-Mexican animus. They did it because they, they worried that overuse of marijuana can lead to various mental illnesses, such as psychosis. Long-term use of marijuana does have that risk in some unknown number of people. And the problem is we don't know what that category of people is, okay? We also know that uh, nine to 10 percent of the people who engage in marijuana use on a long-term basis will become either physically dependent or addicted on it. But how do we know that? Because th the studies have shown, for example, people who report to emergency rooms for psychotic episodes, uh, a large number of them over the course of the last 10 years have been doing so and have indicated that they are long-term marijuana users. Does that establish causation? No. But it certainly establishes a correlation that requires further inquiry. And the reason we have these laws is not simply because we're trying to pick on one particular race or one particular ethnic group. People have decided that these types of drugs, regardless of who uses them, is only going to lead to personal destruction. It doesn't heroin doesn't do, care do whether you're black or for, white. How do we account for, in terms of use, white folks use a little bit higher? Studies are saying this is also self-reported mm -hmm. at a at a significant, but but a a minimum higher rate than African Americans. Yet African Americans are more likely to be arrested, incarcerated, and convicted of a marijuana related a marijuana related offense. Mm -hmm. And to your point about who makes up the federal prison in terms of connecting marijuana or drug offenses to different, more violent crimes? You know, DPA put out and the Drug Policy Alliance put out some numbers. So in 2017, over 600,000 people were arrested for a marijuana-related offense. 600,000 of those were marijuana possession. Who do you think the bulk of those folks were in terms of their race and identity? Well... That may, it, it, if if they were black, then I, I think you, you African Americans and Latino. You, you will so, ar you will argue that serves the point, but I think you have to consider that this in uh, with two other points in mind. One, given the way uh, the uh, housing situation is in the United States, if you have a large uh, population of blacks, you're going to have uh, a large population of people. I'd be willing to say 99% in that community who are not involved in drug activity, okay? 
If they complain to the police about the people engaged in drug activity in their neighborhood, the police aren't acting out of racial animus if they respond to those criticisms. But that's precisely what uh, New York actually suggested, that um, they are targeting communities of color. And I know they often use the argument that, oh, people in, people in communities of color are calling police to actually come in. But when we look at stop and frisk and we look at mandatory minimums and we look at three strikes, you're out, you can't help but wonder if those policies have actually exasperated, in some cases, fuel poverty that gets that creates this cycle of poverty to prison activities that um, push people to the brink of almost desperation. And so I want us to not think about, uh, not to only have this conversation in isolation about what our laws are. Yes, we have laws, but we have to ask, how do we get to this moment in time? So you keep referencing the one, uh, 1938, the Marijuana Tax Act. What about all of um, the, the bogs, was it the Bog Act that actually B-O-G- oh, uh, Boggs Act exactly. in the 50s. Exactly. That talked yeah. about these, introducing these ideas about mandatory minimums and who mm. they actually would affect. And, and so when I go back to even the Nixon era and we think about uh, these ideas around, uh, we knew exactly what we were doing when we were pushing these war on drug policies, when we were pushing this language. We knew that we would be able to entrap and define African-Americans and Latinos as more violent, more prone to drug use, and create this idea about who folks are. But now we look in 2019, what the face of marijuana actually looks like. I mean, I'm, two years ago, we were, I think it was New Year's Eve, and they were having uh, the ball drop, and they kept having segments in Colorado of marijuana use, smoking and edibles, all white people. It's like the narrative has shifted 360 degrees and 360 degrees in just 10 to 20 years. And now marijuana is an acceptable, we're moving toward this acceptability. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, but it's amazing how when the face of marijuana use and possession and entrepreneurship changes, then the language and the laws and the narrative gets to change. But meanwhile, we still, and we have 33 states that have some form of legalized marijuana, whether it's medicinal marijuana or adult use, and we still have people locked up for marijuana possession and use right now, today. How is that possible? How is that just? And I, I just want us to, to stay focused on the criminal justice piece from an aspect of who is most harmed by those laws. And I would say that black and brown people have been disproportionately impacted in our communities in some ways, destroyed from an economic standpoint. I think you also have to shift the focus off of the people committing the offenses to the people in the communities where the offenses are committed. If you have a large black community and only 1% of the people engaged in criminal activity, you have Criminal 90- activity or, or a marijuana possession? Because I'm, I'm not equating the two. Okay, well, depending on what state you're in or what the person is doing with the possession, uh, it could be a violation of that state's law or federal law. So well, it's definitely federal, a violation of federal law because we still have uh, the criminal. That's right. But my point but is, my point is, the focus can't be just on the race of the offender. It also has to take into account the people in the community because they're the victims of the crimes that happen. Okay, when you have a predominantly black community that is beset by violence, like we did in the '60s due to cocaine trafficking. 
not enforcing the law hurts the 99% of the blacks in the community who are not breaking the law and who want just to live in peace. They don't want to be in a position where they have to sleep at night in the bathtub, where they can't go outdoors or out on their porch, as one poor grandmother did in D.C. and got shot by uh, somebody from one of the gangs competing over turf. It's important to consider the victims and their race if there's a racial issue here. I mean, that's particularly true in the cases of the acts that were passed in the 1980s. I mean, in 1986, Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act to deal principally with the birth of uh, crack cocaine. And it was the Congressional Black Caucus that originally pushed to have the crack laws more severe than the... Uh, uh, powdered cocaine laws. Yeah. Now, the number... That's a, that's the a, number. Yeah, I think the Congressional Black Caucus were responding to the calls in their communities to address something, but I don't know if they, right. were, I don't know if they were pushing those particular laws. They, they were trying to make sure they weren't that... Pushing, they weren't pushing a 100 to 1 ratio, but they were pushing a more severe law. Why? Because the only thing Congress can do is pass laws. Uh, they can't implement them. They can't pick the people that implement them. So what they had to do was deal with this problem by figuring if we greatly increase the penalty and make it mandatory, then we will deter people from engaging in the, se in the selling of crack cocaine, which at the time was ravaging a lot of inner city communities. Yeah. Now, they set the number too high, and over t it, take it took us a long time, and we gradually corrected that. But it wasn't racist in its motivations by any means. They were trying to protect people. And the... And, uh, the drug practice, the DEA will tell you, you wound up seeing pr principally black offenders in black communities selling crack. It was the blacks in the community that were the intended beneficiaries of that law. Not, uh, it wasn't that they were trying to punish the offenders because they were black. They were trying to stop anyone from selling. And it was just that it was black offenders in black communities who were the ones principally selling crack cocaine. Yeah, and I think that's precisely why I was saying, Armstrong, earlier is that African-Americans have to be paying close attention because you raise a great point. The intention is to benefit a community. But oftentimes what happens, what happens in the writing of legislation and the implementation of that regulation and the funding of what it goes into to actually uh, execute upon those policies in those regs harm black community because I can assure you that my grandmother who I grew up in the 70s and 80s who might have made a phone call wasn't inviting the police in to ravish our communities to uh, do harm to our African-American uh, boys who might have been uh, making some wrong decisions and I have my own personal story related to uh, marijuana convictions and how it's impacted my family and I in no way intend to see any of my four sons uh, locked up and uh, not have the ability to live the best quality life that they can have, even though we live in this criminalized state. And we're going to sure, leave, sure, sure. We're gonna leave <laughs> it there. So, uh, Sorry. Uh, I love it when we have these strong cast discussions and I say very little. This is what it's about. The guests who care about the community, they just come to different conclusions um, and also uh, conclusions on how we move forward. But it's a very important discussion. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Strongcast. Kadisha uh, and Paul, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Kadisha. Yes. Yes, thank, thank you, you for joining us. Thank you.